Good evening and welcome again. We're grateful for your presence tonight. We're very thankful for the opportunity to be together. And we appreciate Austin leading our scripture reading tonight. We're very thankful for those of you who are visiting. We encourage you to come back and be with us at every opportunity that you have. We're going to be looking tonight at Luke chapter 23. We want to ask the question tonight, why did the centurion come to believe in Jesus? When you look at Luke 23... You find that in the course of the crucifixion of Jesus, the Roman centurion and a Roman centurion had charge over at least 100 soldiers, having surveyed the things that took place on Calvary, cried out, truly this was a righteous man. Matthew in his account in chapter 27 verse 54 said that the centurion cried out, truly this man was the Son of God. Had you been at the foot of the cross, maybe you, like the centurion, were not a believer. Having examined the events that transpired on that day, what would your conclusion have been? What would, you say, what would you have said about Jesus? I want us to think for a moment or two tonight about this centurion. And I want us to maybe think for a minute or two about what led him to believe. What could have prompted an unbeliever, a pagan, to acknowledge Jesus as a righteous man, the Son of God? Let me begin by first of all citing that it may have had to do with the character of Jesus. And so I would raise that possibility as we ask the question, why did the centurion come to believe in Jesus? Did it have to do with the character of Jesus? Now, when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there are a lot of things that are said about Jesus. And there are a lot of things that... that leave us in awe as we think about Christ. There are some passages that I think about in relationship to the character of Jesus that ought not go unnoticed. The Bible tells us in Mark chapter 12 at verse 37 that the common people heard him gladly. You ever notice that wherever Jesus went, he typically drew great multitudes of people. The things that Jesus did, the miracles that he performed, the statements that he made over and over again, multitudes of people had the opportunity to see and to hear firsthand the Son of God. And yet the common people seemed to have been drawn to him. And then I think about a statement made in the Gospel of John in chapter 7, verse 46. It was said about Jesus, no man ever spoke like this man. Again, we think about the character of Christ. Jesus Christ taught on numerous occasions. As a matter of fact, his ministry was some three and one half years, according to Luke. 
And so for a period of three and a half years, Jesus is teaching, he's preaching, he is performing miracles. And so John acknowledges the fact that no one ever spoke like this man. And I think about what Simon Peter said in John chapter 6. Jesus, you recall, identified himself as the bread of life, and many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. The Lord asked the question, will you also go away? Simon Peter spoke up and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? For you have the words of life eternal. So there was something about Jesus that drew people to him. And then I'm reminded of what, again, John said in the 12th chapter of his gospel narrative. John said in relationship to the Grecians of that day that they wanted an audience with the Lord. As a matter of fact, John records the Grecians saying we would see Jesus. In other words, they wanted to spend some time with him. They wanted to have the opportunity to be in his presence, to examine him for, for themselves. And so when we talk about the character of Jesus, a lot of things to consider. Now when you look at Luke chapter 23 in our context, we have the circumstances that lead up to the crucifixion. And inherent in the crucifixion of Jesus, the pain that he experienced. The pain, of course, beginning with his betrayal by one of his own, Judas Iscariot, to be sold out by one of his own disciples. Now Luke records for us the trial of Jesus. It's interesting to me that Pontius Pilate wanted to release Jesus. Pontius Pilate had the opportunity to examine Jesus. He had the opportunity to hear him firsthand. Note if you would what is said in verse 21. The multitude, of course, cried out, crucify him, crucify him. But listen to what Pilate said the third time. Why, what evil has he done? I have found no reason for death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. Pilate here recognized that there was nothing worthy of death in Jesus. Now, I will freely grant there were trumped up charges leveled against Jesus and there were people that were intent on putting him to death, his own people. Note verse 23. But they were insistent, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified, and the voices of these men and of the chief priests prevailed. So Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they requested. And he released to them the one they requested, who for insurrection and murder had been thrown into prison, but he delivered Jesus to their will. Barabbas, of course, was released. Jesus sentenced to death. Now, drop down, if you would, with me and look at verse 32. In verse 32, Luke tells us that there were also two other criminals, malefactors or thieves, led with him to be put to death. When they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. 
I want you to think for just a minute or two about the poise of Jesus. Go back and, and read tonight or throughout this week the trial and crucifixion of Jesus. And note, if you would, the poise that he exhibited throughout this ordeal. To me, it's utterly amazing how Jesus responded in the face of provocation. Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2 that when he was reviled, he reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not. Now listen, if you would, to what is said. Drop down with me, if you would, and look at verse 35. The people stood looking on, but even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine. Now you have to understand that the centurion, he of course is over a group of Roman soldiers. He's present. He is, he is observing the events that are transpiring. Maybe he too, he too took part in the ridicule, the sneering and jeering of Jesus. Verse 37, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. Drop down also and look at verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you're the Christ, save yourself and us. And so for a period of time, you have a number of people mocking, ridiculing, and taunting the Son of God. The thieves who were crucified, they too cast insults into the face of the Son of God. And yet, how did Jesus respond? Poised. I think of, I think of the phrase, cool as a cucumber. I mean, really, that's, that was Jesus. Calm, cool, and collected. Again, Peter said when he was reviled, he reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not. Now, you have to understand that Jesus, according to John was the creator of the universe. He was the agent by which the world was made. He made man in the image of God. And so here is the creator suffering at the hands of his own creation. And yet, he took it, didn't he? There's a third thing I want to call attention to very quickly as we think about the character of Jesus. In verse 38, the Bible talks about the plaque that was nailed into the cross. And an inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. Listen to what it says. This is the king of the Jews. Do you remember Pontius Pilate asking Jesus if he were a king? And Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight? Jesus was indeed a king. He was the king of kings. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. He is the only true potentate. According to what Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 6. But here is this plaque, this sign that's hanging over the cross. And what does it say? This is the king of the Jews. So everyone that is in the vicinity of the cross could stand and look at those words. Those words did not ring hollow, did they? 
There was truth behind those words. Jesus was the king. He is the king. There's a second thing that I want to call attention to. We ask the question, why did the centurion come to believe in Jesus? Well, it may have been because of the character of Jesus. But secondly, we might ask the question, did it have to do with the compassion of Jesus? Think about the compassion of Jesus while on the cross. Let me begin by pointing out that Jesus showed compassion to the people. When I look at Jesus and the crucifixion, I see somebody who's more interested in others than himself. As a matter of fact, Jesus came to comply with the will of his Father, didn't he? In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed three times, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Ultimately, Jesus wanted God's will to take precedence. And I think what Jesus was saying was, if there is any other way that man can be redeemed, let that come to pass. But ultimately, let your will prevail. The Hebrew writer says, though he were a son, yet learned the obedience by the things which he suffered. Jesus submitted to the will of Almighty God. And so, while on the cross, in front of a jeering, howling, violent mob of people, listen to what he said. Verse 34, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. You talk about words of truth. They had no idea what they were doing. These people were responsible for nailing the Son of God to the cross. So, no, they didn't know what they were doing. Had no idea. They were in the very presence of deity, the second member of the Godhead, the Son of God. And yet Jesus spoke words of pardon. Was that not why Jesus came to earth? Did he not say in Luke 19 verse 10 that the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost? Did he not say in Matthew 20 verse 28 that the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto but to minister and, get, and to give his life a ransom for the many? Did Jesus not say for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life? Jesus came to give man freedom from sin. It was all about redemption. The Bible says in Ephesians 1 verse 7, in him, that's in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. On Pentecost Day, we have the first gospel sermon being preached by the apostles. Luke records Peter's sermon. Many people on that day responded to the gospel of Christ. Many of those people had been cut to the heart. They had crucified and slain the Son of God. They knew it. And so they cried out, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said, repent, be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. 
You remember Peter given the keys to the kingdom back in Matthew chapter 16? Well, the doors of the kingdom were opened. And those who responded to heaven's invitation, they enjoyed freedom, forgiveness, redemption. There's a second thing that Jesus did. Not only did he show compassion to the people, but he showed compassion to one of the prisoners. Drop down with me if you would. And look again at verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, if you're the Christ, save yourself and us. When he said, if you are the Christ, what he's saying is, if you are the Messiah, the anointed one, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, do you not even fear God? seeing you are under the same condemnation. Now listen to what this man said. Now we talk about the character of Jesus. I think Pontius Pilate had a little insight into the character of Jesus. I think the centurion certainly came to appreciate the character of Jesus. And one of the thieves came to appreciate the character of Jesus because he said, for we indeed justly we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Some translations say, has done nothing amiss. So here, here, here we have one of the male factors. Acknowledging the fact that Jesus is being put to death unjustly. But note verse 42. He said, Lord, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. Now paradise is the abode of the righteous. We talk about death. What happens at death? We step out into what is called the Hadean realm. The Hadean realm consists of paradise or Abraham's bosom according to Luke 16 verse 22. The bosom of Abraham or paradise that is simply the abode of the righteous that is the godly. All who die in Christ all who die as God's people go to this place. Now the flip side of that the wicked go to a place that is identified as Tartarus. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, we read of the angels who sinned. The Bible says they were cast down. Now, translators typically translate the term, they were cast down to hell. In the original, the word is Tartarus, T-A-R-T-A-R-U-S. All that is, is the abode of the unrighteous. What Jesus was saying to the thief, today you're going to be with me in paradise. That is, you're going to be with me in the abode of the righteous. Now I want to just pause here very quickly and make this observation. A lot of times people will take this verse out of context. They do so in an effort to justify not being baptized into Christ. Sometimes people will talk about 
What is essential to becoming a child of God? And a lot of people in our world today say, well, all you need to do is believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. And in defense of what they say, they often cite the thief on the cross. Well, there's some things you have to understand about the thief on the cross. Number one, who is to say he was or was not baptized? In Matthew chapter 3, we read of the ministry of John the Baptist, John the Immerser. He preached a baptism of repentance under the remission of sins. And the Bible tells us that all of Jerusalem and Judea and the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan confessing their sins. Some say that the thief on the cross was never baptized. Well, he may not have been baptized, but he may have been baptized according to John's baptism. A second thing to remember Jesus was the Son of God. And Jesus said in Mark chapter 2, verse 10, that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Jesus was vested with all authority. He had the right, the power, the authority to say to this man, Today you'll be with me in paradise. And then there is a third thing that I would say, and I think really this is the crux of the matter. When Jesus died on Calvary's cross, the old law was nailed to it, wasn't it? Colossians 2 verse 14. When the thief died, he died under what law? The law of Moses or the law of Christ? The law of Moses, didn't he? When we talk about New Testament baptism, we're talking about the Christian age. Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 through 17. Today we are under the law of Christ. This man did not have to be baptized according to the teaching of our Lord. Based on Mark 16, 16, Matthew 28, 19, and 20, and other verses. And the reason is because he died under the old law. And so today, if I want to be saved, do I need to be baptized into Christ? Absolutely. Why is that? Because Jesus has all authority, Matthew 28, 18. And Jesus said, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. Well, why do I need to be baptized? Because unless I'm baptized into Christ, I can't appropriate the blood of Christ. Jesus shed his blood in death, John 19, 34. The only way that I can contact the blood of Christ is to go where it was shed, and that was in his death. I do that when I am baptized into Christ. Now, now am I saying that baptism is the only thing that I need to do to become a child of God? Absolutely not. We talk about the steps of salvation. Every step is essential. Jesus said, he that believeth and is baptized. Belief is mandatory, Hebrews 11, verse 6. Repentance. On the day of Pentecost, Peter said, repent. You have to turn from a life of sin. 
And then we have to confess with our mouth that we believe Jesus to be the Son of God, just like the eunuch did in Acts chapter 8, verse 37. And then we're baptized into Christ. When we're baptized into Christ, what happens? Our sins are washed away, Acts 22, 16. We enjoy salvation, Mark 16, 16. We have the remission of sins, Acts 2, verse 38. So, why did the centurion come to believe in Jesus? Well, number one, it could have had to do with his character. Number two, it could have had to do with his compassion. And then number three, we could ask the question, did it have to do with the cries of Jesus? In looking at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you have to understand that there are recorded seven statements of Jesus while on the cross. In preparing this lesson, I got to thinking about the statements that are recorded for our benefit. Now just think about this for a minute. Of everything the Lord could have said on the cross, this is what we know he said. If you were dying, let's just say that you knew for a certainty death was imminent within the next few hours. And your friends and loved ones were gathered around you. What would you say to them? What would you say? Here is Jesus on the cross. And he makes seven profound statements. The centurion is standing at the cross and he is listening and observing what's going on. Let me just very quickly cite for you what Jesus said. First of all, we go back and look at verse 34. Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I mentioned a moment ago the poise of Jesus and the fact that here are people mocking and ridiculing and taunting him. For a period of time, the thieves are casting insults into the face of the Son of God, and yet Jesus speaks words of forgiveness. I wonder how many crucifixions this centurion had observed in the past, presided over maybe. Do you think he, do you think he had ever seen anybody like Jesus? Do you think he had ever seen anybody during the process of crucifixion cry out for forgiveness for those responsible for his death? Jesus did. And then in verse 43, of course, Jesus said to one of the thieves, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. I think about the confidence and assurance. Here is Jesus and he is saying to this thief that has spoken words of repentance. Jesus is saying, today you're going to be with me in the abode of the righteous. 
kind of an impression do you think that made on the centurion? I mean, to think that during the course of the crucifixion, he has seen a change of heart in one of the thieves, a melting of the heart. And then thirdly, John tells us that Jesus expressed concern for his own mother. He said to John the apostle, Woman, behold your son. And to John, behold your mother. As Jesus neared the end of his physical sojourn here on planet earth, concerned about his own mother in the flesh, concerned about her well-being. And I think that says something to us about his care for the human family. Jesus demonstrated his care for people over and over again. But in the closing moments of his life, showed concern for his own mother. And then Matthew tells us in chapter 27, verse 46, that Jesus cried out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you remember what the Bible says about the events that occurred during the crucifixion? That from the sixth to the ninth hour, darkness covered the land? God the Father, Jesus Christ the Son, had enjoyed an intimate relationship throughout all of eternity up to that point in time. And now Jesus is bearing the sins of the human family. He is going to bear our sins in his body, as Peter would say on the tree. And during that darkened period of time, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I really believe that the anguish that Jesus experienced over the cross was the separation that occurred between himself and the Father. Separation that had never before occurred. This centurion is listening. He is observing what's going on. And then in John 19, verse 28, Jesus cries from the cross, I thirst. I think underscoring his humanity. You see, Jesus was divine and human, wasn't he? He was the word who became flesh, John 1, 14. And so Jesus is on the cross. He is experiencing excruciating pain. I can't imagine the suffering that he experienced for me. Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, that Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust. Crucifixion would, would have been a terrible way to die. I said this morning, the Romans perfected the art of crucifixion. They had it down to a science. And the intent was, one of the intents was, they wanted people to suffer horrendously. And Jesus suffered in just that manner. And then in John 19, verse 30, Jesus said, It is finished. 
bringing to a culmination his work here on planet earth. Jesus came to do what? To fulfill the will of Almighty God. Back in John chapter 17, verse 5. In the shadow of the cross, he prayed to God the Father. He said, I've glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work you have given me to do. What was that work? To die for the sins of the human family. And so here is Jesus dying for the sins of the human family. And on the cross, he cries out, it is finished. And then Luke tells us, in chapter 23, verse 46, Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And Luke tells us, having said this, he breathed his last. Now look at verse 47. When the centurion saw what had happened, now Matthew tells us that Again, we think about the darkness that covered the land from 12 to 3 p.m. in the afternoon. The Bible says that the earth quaked. The veil of the temple was rent in two. You have all of these things that are taking place during the hour of crucifixion. And here's what the centurion said. Certainly, this was a righteous man. Luke said he glorified God. He was a pagan. He was a heathen. And yet the circumstances before him made a difference because he came to the conclusion Jesus was a righteous man. Now, Matthew said in chapter 27, verse 54, that the centurion said, truly this was the Son of God. What does that say about Jesus? Well, if he were not a righteous man, he would not be the Son of God because he claimed to be the Son of God, didn't he? So, the centurion got it right. Now, there were other people that acknowledged the same, that Jesus was the Son of God, that he was a righteous man. But this centurion, this unbelieving pagan came to an appreciation of who Jesus was. So here's the question tonight. Here's the question of the hour. Who is Jesus to you? You've got to sift through the evidence. You've got to take this book that we call the Bible, and you've got to read carefully what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John have said about Jesus. You've got to take the epistles and read and study and meditate on them. Now you can look at outside history and you can read what others, historians, have said about Jesus. But ultimately, you have to decide about Jesus. Was he a righteous man? Was he the son of God? Is he the son of God? There are a lot of folks in our world today when it comes to identifying Jesus. They acknowledge he was a good man. He was a social revolutionist. He was a great teacher, a great preacher, but they come short of acknowledging him to be the son of God. But I want you to listen to what Jesus said 
except you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. What he is saying is, unless you come to believe that I am who I claim to be, the Son of God, you'll die in your sins. You have no hope. You have to come to understand Jesus is everything he claimed to be. So having said that, have you obeyed the gospel? Jesus is the only one who can save. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me, John 14, 6. You can't be saved outside of Christ. Salvation is in Christ, 2 Timothy 2, 10. The only way to get into Christ, be baptized into him. So tonight I ask the question, have you been baptized into Christ? Do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? If your answer is yes, what would keep you from repenting of your sins tonight? What would keep you from confessing before this assembly you believe Jesus to be the Son of God? What would keep you from being baptized into Christ tonight? Don't wait. If you need to be baptized into Christ, do that this hour. If you're unfaithful to his cause, come home tonight as we stand and sing.